Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. All right, we're happy to have Scott Lease on the show. I've observed him from afar for a while and was honored that he accepted our invite. Uh, he's a two-time best-selling Amazon author in the category of sales, three-time SVP of sales at Qualia, Outbound Engine, Main Street Hub. Uh, he also maintains many active communities, GTM United. In December, he has an upcoming conference in Costa Rica called Surf and Sales, which he's run for the last seven years. And just that ability to get people on a plane to travel to one of his events, I think speaks to his uh, reputation in the industry. So Scott, is there anything else you wanna give about your background? No, man, that's, that's, that's plenty. It gets obnoxious. And, and it's and it it shows how old I am and how long I've been around. <laughs> and the more we talk about all the stuff that I've done, so I'm happy. To, I'm happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. And I guess with that set up, right? You're you run a consultancy. You have active communities. You're able to, you know, organize a conference. What would it take for you to give all of that up and go work at a SaaS company? Like, what would that category look like? What would the leadership look like? Like, what what would it take to get you to drop everything? Well, I think everything would have to drop me, first of all. You know, my, my, all of the projects and businesses that I work on, I think would have to come to a grinding halt and kind of fail. So I can't see myself being motivated to go back and become a VP of sales or a CRO or something like that. The advantages are, are not really there. I could potentially see myself going back and, and being a founder and building a software company and taking a big swing. But, you know, if you've done your time, done well, successfully exited out of it and, and are running your own thing successfully, a lot of people that I know are making significantly more money than they ever did as an operator in a company working for somebody else with less stress. And it just, the thought of going back is like, why, <laughs> why would I ever kind of do that? So it's not, it's not really about a founder or an industry or a product or something like that. It's just like, it financially makes no sense from a work-life balance and happiness kind of scorecard. It's hard to imagine it making sense. So I think it would take, you know, catastrophe really in, in my own businesses to drive me back to say, you know what, Matt, I'll be your VP of sales. I just don't see it happening. And I think this is an important question too, because, you know, you hear all these playbooks and advice about, you know, get that person who's already been there and done that, been a VP, help you scale. Right. And it's interesting to hear though, that people who've had success, have had exits, have had the roles, might not really want that role. Right. Particularly in today's world where it's easier to be a creator, yeah. e easier to kind of scale a consultancy business. Well, that, that's the thing. I think that you've seen in the last, let's call it um, five years or so, more successful VPs of sales and CROs have exited the profession than at any time prior to that that I can remember. And why is that, you think? Well, 
disparity in wealth creation between a founder and a VP of sales is so extreme, it blows people's minds. Uh, I had one particular exit in a company that I scaled, the founders netted eight figures, let's just say, okay? Mm -hmm. And I made roughly half a million dollars. Now, I'm not saying that a VP of sales should make as much as the founders. But you're talking about multiple zeros difference, right? For a company that had no customers prior to my arrival. And I was there for three years. I vested, you know, three quarters of the amount that I could have. So people who've been in the game long enough and gone through a few exits like that, they're more savvy now to the equity game. So you, you can't seduce me into coming to work for you by telling me you're going to give me one and a half percent of the company because I do the math and I'm like, okay, I'll have a nice little outcome, but you know, I'm not making millions over here, right? Unless we get extremely, extremely lucky. So that's part of it. The second part of it is there's zero job security whatsoever as a VP of sales. I mean, your head is the first one on the chopping block. It's been well-documented for years now that the the average tenure of a VP of sales is like 15 to 18 months. Every single day I see people on LinkedIn who have been a head of sales, VP of sales for five or six months and, and they're getting let go already because the expectation upon them, you know, to kind of turn water into wine is outrageous and you're not given much time and much support to get there. So there's that. And then you alluded to it as well. The opportunities to do things on your own have never been easier. Whether it's you know creator economy stuff, building your brand, doing consulting, you know, doing private coaching, building communities, releasing courses and things like this, running events, I could probably spit off the names of two dozen people who are VPs of sales who have taken themselves off the market and are all making way more money, working less, and enjoying themselves more than if they were back in that kind of operator seat. So there, there's been a mass exodus of sales leadership talent in the last five years or so. That's interesting. It's fascinating, right? I think for you know a lot of vantage points, like a lot of the audience here are you know investors, private equity, venture capital, and you kind of just assume that people will be attracted to you know SVP role at a, a, a growing company, and just the cold reality is not really. You know, maybe when you're just going through it for the first or second time, maybe even the third time, right? I mean, I did it six times, okay? One, two, three of the companies have had an exit. One should have a good exit. One did well and then faded into nothing and one never got really off the ground, right? So you could argue that I did a good job at, at five of the six, maybe four of the six, if you want to be kind of critical. So I had a pretty good hit rate. And, you know, the, the first time I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be fun. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get paid, right? I didn't know any better. And it was my own fault. And I was new, brand new in my career. I didn't understand the game. And the second time I started to get savvy and I didn't get any equity. And I was like, Why, what is going on here, right? And eventually I just got smarter and smarter about kind of knowing what was going to be possible. Right. And you just start to realize like, 
unless we absolutely hit this like home run of all home runs and we're selling companies for billions of dollars and I own one to 2%, I'm really not going to make like massive life changing wealth generation type of money in this VP of sales role. So you're right. It becomes less attractive to people once they've kind of given it a shot or two, right? It's like, okay, I can go work for you and make $200,000 base, 400,000 on the year. And maybe, you know, 10 years from now, if we've had a really good run, I'll get a million dollar bonus, right? Okay. But if I bail on working for you and go do my own thing and consult and all this other stuff, I can run a multi-million dollar one to two person business every single year. So then you do the math and it's like, you come out way more ahead and you don't have these masters to serve, right? I don't have, I don't have a boss, right? That's a tricky thing for people who run, you know, venture uh, businesses. Where are you going to hire your next VP of sales from? Because the people who have been there and done that a few times that could really be counted on, they don't really want to do it anymore. So now you're going after this younger group of people, less experienced people who still kind of are drinking some of the Kool-Aid and don't really know any better. But those kids now are savvier than, than me, you know? I didn't start doing anything on the side until I had been a VP of sales like three or four times. I was like 10 years into the business. Now these kids are in sales leadership and they sell courses, they do coaching and training, they run events. They've got three or four things going on already. And they're, you know, 30 years old, maybe and ready, ready for like the VP role. That's who founders have to hire. And it's been frustrating for founders because they're like, you know, Matt's distracted. He's not all in. He does this other thing over here. Right. Or he's never done that before. And so there's a rise of sort of fractional kind of sales leadership where people like myself come in and it's like, I can help you do all these things. I just don't want to manage people day to day. And I don't want your quota on my head. Right. No, so it's, it's a tough it's a tough spot. The, the power dynamic has flipped a little bit, I think, you know. And what would you look for in a first time VP of sales like the someone coming up? Yeah. Well, they, they have to almost have something to prove. I think a little bit of a chip on the shoulder, something to prove. They really want to build something from scratch and be a part of that journey to be able to tell that story. Yes. They still have to believe in the, the narrative of, Hey, you can, you know, make crazy amounts of money on an exit and the equity is going to be worth something and all that. They have to have a love for selling and coaching and process and building the right kind of systems to make things repeatable. I think they have to be very competitive, very creative. These are the type of things that you're, you're looking for from somebody, but you, you also have to find somebody who is not so proud that they think they need to do everything on their own, right? They, they need to have a support network, whether that's a coach or a consultant or just friends that they have or family members or whatever, they need to have people they can lean on and say, Hey Matt, I'm in this weird situation over here, dude, what would you do? Right. Or how did you solve this Scott at when you were a, a VP of sales, how did you deal with this challenge or problem? If you don't have anybody to ask those questions to and get direct feedback from those people are set up for failure quite a bit. 
Interesting. And we'll transition from like how you might look at a role or, or not even look at a role to like, what advice would you give someone at the account executive level or even SDR going into the AE role, how to do due diligence on an opportunity in a company in assessing a role they should take? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult question. If if you're going someplace that already has a team and a, a process and a product, you really need to talk to people who have been around that company. You need to talk to customers, frankly, to understand, does the product work? Is it good? Why do you like it? Have you thought about canceling it? You need to talk to people who work at this company already in the role that you're in and supporting roles. Is it possible to hit quota? You know, do I get coaching? Do we have any tools? Uh, how do they manage us, right? Talk to people in customer success roles and figure out, are customers happy? <laughs> you know, how many support tickets do you get all the time? And you need to look at now more than ever, I, I think you have to avoid these sort of uh, nice to have features and widgets that are, are masquerading as a company. Because when times are tough, those are the first things that get cut. Those are not the things that people see as essential to run their business. So I think you've got to look for platform opportunities, things that power an entire business, right? Those things, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but those things are essential. Everybody has to have some tool to make phone calls or some tool to acting as a CRM, right? You don't have to have this little widget over here that does this one fancy little thing. So, you know, I caution people a lot about falling victim to this like shiny new toy kind of syndrome, right? It's like, would you buy that if you were running one of these businesses? Or would you look at it as an unnecessary expense if you were cash constrained? So these are just some of the things that, you know, somebody sizing up these different roles should be thinking about. Interesting. And any differences at kind of the VP director level? I mean, that could be more of, you know, what are these founders like? What do they know or not know about my job and, and how to do it or how to sell this product? How involved are, are they going to be? Or are they going to empower me to do what I need to do and kind of um, stay out of the way? How are the goals being set? Is it top down? Is it a discussion? How flexible are you? you know, and adjusting things based on our model. What's your communication style, right? Do I want to work for somebody who's sending me 900 Slack messages after 10 PM on a Wednesday? What's their vision for the company moving forward? Are they well capitalized and in a position to get more capital if that's the type of business that we're in? You also really need to, to, to think, do I want to work with this person for the next few years? Like, am I, am I going to enjoy these conversations? Right. Or can I not imagine myself talking to this person or hanging out with them at all? You're going to spend a truckload of time with this person. And on some level, their career is in your hands. So you might as well find somebody that you enjoy hanging out with, spending time with and working alongside and building something with it. And if you don't feel that from the start, it's only going to get worse because those relationships are ripe with friction and tension all the time. So hopefully you can start from a really strong place. Otherwise you're in big trouble real fast. Interesting. And what type of founder like do you kind of get along best with CEO you get along best with? I mean, 
when I'm in an operator's seat, the kind that kind of leave me alone and stay out of the way. When I'm in a consulting seat, the kind who want to learn, who know what they don't know, want to implement feedback, move quickly, ask lots of questions, uh, and things like that, right? It's very difficult, whether you're an operator or in a consultant seat, when, when you're working with founders who have this idea in their head of how things are supposed to be based on absolutely nothing other than an Excel sales forecasting model that they or their CFO put together. Not based on any real life experience, not based on prior company experience, not based on any interaction with a VP of sales before, just based on some fucking computational model. That's a nightmare for a VP of sales. I can, I, I can only imagine. That's part of the reason the tenure is 18 months, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Those, that's right. Those situations, right, where it's just some impossible KPI that, you know, eventually that friction is going to end the role. It's a quick road to burn yourself out big time. For sure. Kind of a transition. I don't even know if it's a transition here, but I've noticed a lot of content from you and, and other people, kind of the shift from go to market to go to network, kind of outbound to inbound, nearbound, where you're, you're leveraging your network. Could you give people a recap of like that overall framework? Yeah, the, the overall idea is that we behave differently now than we used to, and we will continue to evolve our behavior uh, around utilities like the telephone and email as we move forward. If you don't believe me, you just have to pause and think for a second, and I think you'll change your mind. You know, I don't know how you how old you are, Matt, but I'm 46 years old. When I was growing up and the phone rang in my house, everybody would run to the phone, sprint because you're excited that the phone rang and you were like, who could it be? Right now, if your phone rings, it's a distraction and you're kind of annoyed and you're on the defensive like, oh, God, who's soliciting me now? You know, what spam phone call is this? I have my ringer off 24 seven, so I don't even get phone calls. Now you think about your kids. If you have kids, I have two teenagers. They don't use the phone at all. They have cell phones, but they don't use the phone function. They don't talk on the phone. I also asked them the other day, like, Hey, do you guys use email at all? Like when you talk to each other or anything like that, they're like, no, that's the lamest thing ever. Right. So now imagine those kids in five or 10 years when they are C-level executives. Do you think your kids are going to answer cold calls from numbers they don't know? No, that will never happen. And what difference does it make if you're writing really compelling emails, if the people you're writing to don't use email as a channel of communication? It's an absolute waste of time. And that is 100% the direction that we're headed. There's tons of data that shows phone call pickup rates are down, email response rates are down. And it's because we live in a world of notification overload and we can't get anything fucking done. So we don't want to deal with email and we don't want to talk on the phone unless it's people that we already know and trust. So the idea is that you need to build your network up as big and strong as humanly possible. 
Because in the future, the only way to open opportunity is going to be through somebody that is a mutual connection of whatever party you're trying to talk to. So if I'm trying to get a hold of Matt and I don't know him, but my buddy Ryan does, I'm like, hey, Ryan, it uh, looks like you, you know this guy, Matt Harney. Do you know him well enough to make an intro? I'd love to talk to him about X, Y, Z. If you can, I'll break you off a piece of the commission if I end up closing a deal. And Ryan's like, yeah, I know Matt. No worries. Let me see what he thinks. So Ryan reaches out to you, Matt, and you trust Ryan that he's not wasting your time. And you're like, yeah, I kind of have that problem. I trust you. This guy, Scott's a good guy. His company's pretty good. All right. Yeah. Make the intro. Sure. And now we've got a mutual opt-in opportunity. And those opportunities are closing at a significantly smaller sales cycle, and they have a larger average contract value. And so the belief is that the old golden market, cold calling, outbound kind of tactics are dying off, and they're going to be replaced by this go-to-network, nearbound kind of motion, where you're relying on the strength of relationships that your buyers already have and trust. And so that whole period where you're trying to build rapport and uh, yeah, you're legit and all, the, all that stuff goes away. And the scary function for a seller of cold calling goes away. And the annoying function of being disrupted and called and emailed from a buyer perspective goes away. And I think this is the world that, that, we're, uh, that we're headed. And like I said, we behave differently now, you and I, than we did when we were kids. And our kids will not engage in business practices and tactics the same way that we did. Interesting. And like what type of seller performs best? And obviously a network is important, but like any other traits like creativity, truly relationship driven. Well, you can't, you can't perform the function without a network. So I would argue that if you're a salesperson without a network right now, your job is in jeopardy. And every single day, one of your KPIs should be how many people did I add to my network today? And then how do you perform well? You have to actually help your network. You have to give, give, give constantly, right? Help out 10 people for every one thing you get helped with. Right? So share what you know, connect people to each other, this type of stuff. Work to actively strengthen these relationships. Easiest thing in the world if you have a network. I've spent the last three months traveling all around the world, basically. I went to Norway, met up with random LinkedIn connections, hung out, did stuff. Went to Finland, had dinner with a couple Finnish connections of mine. Went to Sweden had lunch and cocktails with people over there. Went to Seattle, met up with people. Went to Boston, created an impromptu meetup of 20 people and went to a Red Sox game. Went to San Francisco, networked with a bunch of people that I know. So once you have these people in your network, every time you travel someplace, like maybe have a cocktail, maybe have lunch, maybe grab a coffee, maybe go for a run with these people. And these are just small little ways that you're strengthening the relationships that you already have and hopefully, you know, gaining some new relationships along the way. You never know who you're going to be able to help and, and who might be able to help you. People who get that and who actively behave and engage like this with their network, those are the people who will succeed in this kind of go to network function. 
and kind of using an analogy from like channel sales, like sales that go through distributors, a lot of the products that perform well in there are, you know, Dell and Microsoft and VMware, right? Where they have the brand, they have everything. Let's say your product, you're, you're a seller at a smaller company or middle market company without that golden brand. Is this go to network more challenging for them? I think it's different than what you're talking about because the what you're talking about is is a almost like reseller in a way, right? And go to network is not reselling; it's just an introduction. It's sort of performing the SDR function more than the account executive function where you're pitching and trying to close close a deal. So. Is it harder? I think it's harder because if you have a brand new product, Matt, and you're trying to leverage me and my network to open opportunities, it's harder because I don't know and trust your product maybe as much. I have to be careful about the quality control, if you will, of products that I kind of endorse and refer out to my network. You know, if I hit up a couple people and and they buy your product and your product ends up sucking and not working or you end up you know delivering bad service or whatever i've put my relationship with these other people at risk because of that so there's a bit of a challenge there in getting the people who might open these opportunities up for you to trust that you've built something cool that works well and you're a good person to partner with versus you know Scott endorsing Adele or, or something like that, right? Interesting. It's just a, a curiosity because there's some parallels there. Yeah. And then a, another like theoretical question, right, is can go to network kind of like achieve the same level of like overall sales productivity that you might have seen in kind of like the golden age of SaaS when predictable revenue and jamming out lots of templated emails still really worked? Like, because at times you can listen to this and feel like, well, it's just impossible to have a network as large as what we could do from true cold outbound. Well, remains to be seen, number one. But if you if we keep pining for how things used to be, we're going to dig ourselves a grave. It, I mean, look, I would love to be able to make 100 phone calls and have 75 people pick up the phone again. I grew up in that era. That's awesome. But guess what? Those fucking days are gone and they're not coming back. So it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? Why would I compare my productivity now to how they were in a golden era when I can't replicate that golden era because we just simply don't engage that way? That's just, I'm going to set myself up for frustration and disappointment doing that. The question is now, can we make this go to network function succeed in a way that allows us to sustain growth in a financially responsible manner that creates better, stronger companies, happier, healthier customers. And, you know, everybody kind of wins and nobody's had to go through the experience of having their day randomly interrupted and, you know, getting hung up on all day long and all that kind of stuff. Can it work? And it works if deals are closing faster, if deals are closing at a larger value, 
it's not just the size of the network, but also the size of the communities that you're in. You know, a community can be an extended network, even if you don't know anybody, know everybody personally. People have done this through church, for example, forever. Well, how mm-hmm. is church different from a network perspective than being a part of a large group of VPs of sales or VPs of marketing, right? You go to one of these communities and you say, hey, I'm looking to get a hold of this guy, Scott Lease. Does anybody here know him? That's your SDR function right there, right? I don't think that I believe in the notion that we will not be able to succeed with this function. Should you only do that function? No, I don't think so. I think like anything else, you should be trying everything and and leaning in on the things that work. But I do think you have to prepare for a world where you will not be able to hit your number by making phone calls and sending emails alone. Interesting, interesting. I think these are kind of related. I know Sapphire Ventures just had a good conference presentation where they walked through benchmarks they assembled in 2018, 30% of all GTM spend was account executive related. And then in 2013, only 10% of total GTM spend has been account executive related. You mean 2023 was only? 2023, only 10% is actually spent on account executives. Yeah. So you've had that. And, you know, as everyone's seen over the last year or two, there's been an incredible focus on quota attainment. Everyone's looking at rep view and 30%, 40%. And there's a lot of pressure on sales, but there hasn't been as much pressure on all of these other, the other 90% of the GTM function. Is there anything you've been seeing in terms of like what's being delivered to reps? Like, is there too much accountability or too much negativity towards sellers compared to the rest of the revenue function? Well, I think there's too much of a disparity in terms of the accountability. If revenue doesn't hit its target, the salespeople are the one who gets gets the blame. Even if the product was buggy and these new features didn't come out on time the way they said they were. I don't see product people getting fired for that. I don't see the marketing team getting fired for not building a good enough brand or bringing in enough leads. I'm sure it happens, but not with the regularity of, of salespeople. You know, you, you see that spend go down. Why do you think that spend is? Because they're hoping that they can just build a good enough product and build a strong enough brand and kind of word of mouth around it that they can have a product-led growth function where they don't even have to bother with having a sales team because a sales team is expensive. That's how, that's how we're viewed as a, as a profession. Still a little bit as an, a nuisance and a must-have, not something we want to have. So we can find ways through the product, through marketing and branding, through the use of AI, and to automate away some of these expenses, you best believe that founders are going to continue to go in that direction. They're going to become more and more capital efficient. And I don't think you're going to see these sales orgs of 200 people flying around anymore. I think you're going to see, you know, a handful of really, really elite sellers working for companies. And that's going to be kind of the, the new norm. Interesting. 
And what have you seen from, you know, you have exposure to a lot of different companies, a lot of people through your community, like what is working right now? Like what are the areas or motions that are actually working? I don't know that anything's working very good for, uh, for most people. You know, it depends on, depends on what you do and what industry you're in and who you're selling to and things like that. You know, the phone still works pretty well for people who are in like SMB and calling places like restaurants and doctor's offices where there's somebody, you know, in office and on the phone all day long. But the phone sucks for working when you're trying to cold call C-level executives right now. If you're in SaaS and B2B tech, you've been taking it on the chin for a year plus. But if you're not in tech, you might not have noticed the recession, you know, if you will, in, in the same way that the rest of us have. So some of the things that always worked for us before still work. We're just not working as well. People are trying to get more and more creative. That's where you see this go to network function come up. You're seeing people put a lot of time and energy into content creation and brand building and, you know, kind of this slow drip of like association with this particular problem. I don't have this problem right now, but oh, when I do have the problem, I remember this company, they're all over the place everywhere. Like that's who I should go to, to solve it. These are the things that I, that I notice everybody doing, but I notice a lot of, a lot of struggle and a lot of frustration this year as people feel like I just need more pipeline, you know, I need more pipeline and, and I need to be able to convert it better. It's the same thing we've always said. We're just feeling the pain a little bit more right now, I think. Interesting, interesting. And this might be related, and it's a, a LinkedIn post I saw of yours that elaborated on, most deals die from predictable, self-inflicted errors. And it goes on to say, and a lot of this is caused by a lack of reverse engineering root causes. So what are some of these self-inflicted errors that are very common? Well, we, we don't come to people at the right time they don't trust us enough. We don't have the right product market fit yet. We're priced poorly, maybe too cheap, maybe too expensive. We're not positioned well against the competition, right? All of these things can kind of sabotage and kill off your deals. People don't think that something is, people don't think that now is the right time to invest or they've got other priorities that are more important. Your product is outside of our budget right now. How many times this year have you talked to somebody who said, we have no budget for anything right now? A lot, probably, right? If you're a brand new company in a space, there's this perception that the incumbents and larger companies are you know, better and more trustworthy and, and established and all that kind of stuff. So you're, you're banging your head against that drum. They might not trust you just in general as a salesperson. We've, we've already been talking about this. Thing. Like I cold call you out of the blue and, you know, I'm interrupting your day. It's like, how do I trust this, this person right here? How do I, how do I know that Scott's credible or his company is, is credible? And is there actually product market fit? Is, is this actually a big enough problem that is urgent enough for somebody to deal with? And do we tackle it efficiently and effectively? Or have we got an idea and the product doesn't really like nail it yet? And we're missing all of these different things but I'm still being asked to sell it. These are all things that are, are sabotaging deals 
you know, left and right right now, man. And then on the reverse engineering side, like let's say you're, you know, a seller, right? And a lot of those things you just went through are like kind of problems outside your domain as a seller, you know, they're product market fit or, or product quality issues. So on the reverse engineering, like what can you do on the reverse engineering? And then realistically as an individual seller, uh, first of all. I mean, the best thing you can do is vet all of this stuff before you accept the role, frankly. Yep. Talk to customers, talk to people who work there, make sure that the things the company posits itself as being able to do are actually happening. Right. And that's the best you can, can do. But the reality is you really don't know. And you're, you're gambling with it a little bit, but if you're, if you find yourself in one of those situations where, Hey, Scott, you're, you got a million dollar quota and you got to sell this thing, even though we don't have these five features that are core and critical, why would I stay there? That, that's my real answer is why would I stay at that company? I cannot sell something that doesn't work and is not ready to people who are well aware that they need these things. And I don't care how many times you whip me like a racehorse or how much money you dangle in front of me. It's a losing situation for sellers. So the best thing you could do is figure out which companies and products out there have a winning situation right now for you to step into. It's all about timing, right? All about timing and, and knowing where to go play, basically. Yeah. Sellers and, and, and revenue execs as really the true venture capitalists, like know the best opportunities to pick. Yeah. And, you know, another thing you could do if you're a, if you're a seller is align yourself with a, a sales leader that you trust, right? So maybe you don't trust your own ability to vet the right opportunity, but you've worked for Matt at two of his previous companies, like... Matt's pretty good at picking companies. So I'm going to go work where Matt is, right? That's something that you could try as well. That's a, yeah, that's a good playbook. Well, look, we've covered a lot. Is there anything you want to promote or plug? I know you have a lot of different things going on. Well, there's a million things going on, you know, surfingsales.com. You could check out, this is a, a small micro sales conference. Uh, out in Playa Grande, Costa Rica, we rent houses right on the beach and do sales and entrepreneurship content uh, for a few hours a day. And then we go surf and eat food and have drinks and just network. So uh, check that out if you're looking for an antidote to the big, huge, stuffy sales conference world of uh, 10 hours of content a day in the Marriott in, uh, in San Francisco or St. Louis or someplace like this. Yeah, it's, it sounds substantially better. So we'll include the link to the the uh, Surf and Sales uh, ticket page uh, and hope people uh, carve out some time for that. And again, Scott, thank you for the time and, and all the insights here. Oh, you're welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me.